Good morning. Uh, my name is Nathan. If I've not had a chance to meet you, uh, welcome to another gathering of Restoration Church, and welcome to another gathering of Restoration Kids gathering in the back. Off you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there you go. See you, buddy. Uh, just a few announcements really quickly, just to call your attention to a few things. Uh, first off, um, we're taking the Lord's Supper this morning, as we always do, first Sunday of every month, and so just be in preparation for that. But two, um, tonight is our uh, Spanish babies two-year anniversary. So our Spanish-speaking babies two-year anniversary. So the church that we planted in Columbia Heights, they'll celebrate their second anniversary tonight. And I'd love for you to come out and support their work. You will get to hear English, uh, but you'll have to listen to me again. So uh, they meet at 5.30 over in Columbia Heights. Come and join and uh, and if you are not able to make it, just pray for us as we gather to celebrate what the Lord's doing there. Uh, next, uh, just want to remind you of the theology intensive for the covenant members of this church. So if you want to be discipled, you've never been discipled, you want to know how to make disciples, uh, those kinds of things, come, sign up, read, show up. It'll be great. You'll be glad you did. Uh, and then lastly, I uh, just wanted to uh, call your attention to next week. Our brother Lewis Guest will be a guest preacher. Uh, here, and I'm sure he's never heard that joke before. Uh, so uh, Lewis Guest is one of our, uh, he's part of the Treasuring Christ Together Network, which is a part of church planning group that we're together uh, with. You've heard us pray for Jubilee Community Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's one of the associate pastors there, and he's going to come, and he was very kind to pick up uh, in Luke. So he'll be preaching our passage next week. So you'll look forward to, to hearing his uh, delivery of God's word to us. Let me pray for us as we dive in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for Jesus, our hope and our great reward. May we behold him now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I read a, once read a question in a book uh, that I've actually brought, brought one copy of. It was sitting in my office this morning. It's right over here. Uh, so we got one copy if you want it, and you're going to promise to read it. You can take it home and read it. Uh, but I read a quote in that book when I read that book many years ago. Uh, and the quote is a sort of well-known. If you've been around Restoration Church, you've heard me use this quote a lot. It's a haunting quote. I think about this quote a lot, this question a lot. Uh, the question is posed, he says, for every, not only our generation, but for every generation. And here's the question. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you had ever had on the earth, and all the food that you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with that heaven if Christ were not there? Or maybe if I could improve that question with just one slight adjustment. Could you be satisfied with that heaven if you were unable to have any sight of the glory of Christ. I shudder to think how many people understand themselves to be Christians and would happily say yes to that question. But you need to know, friend, if that's you, that heaven does not exist. There is one heaven, and heaven's darling is the eternal glorious Christ. And we have the great privilege this morning of seeing him in his glory this morning in the book of Luke, chapter 9. If you've not turned there already, go ahead and turn there. We're going to get to see the glory of Christ there. And so if you're tempted to say yes to that question, 
might I encourage you to pay close attention to this passage as it's going to peel back the glory of Christ and hopefully by the end of our time together you'll see the need for the sight of the glory of Christ. And if, if you said, no, I don't want that heaven, we'll be encouraged as we gaze all the more into the glory of Christ and his wonderful, beautiful face. Now, last week, we took a critical leap in the book of Luke, and as we've been walking through it now, it took a huge turn. Uh, Luke is writing about the king and the kingdom. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of God is the reign and rule of Christ. The reign and rule of Christ, or as I like to say it, it's sort of the eternal rest in Christ. Uh, we saw last week how Jesus contrasted who the crowds say that he was versus who he actually is. And then Peter gives the proper confession that he is the Messiah, the Christ of God. And so with that turn, Luke is now going to slow down in his narrative uh, in order to pay close attention to this gospel that uh, Peter at least seemed to cognitively understand, at least at some level, last week. He's going to slow down. So believe it or not, we're in chapter 9. By the end of this passage today, we are halfway through the book of Luke. And so he has documented some 29, 30, 31 years of life and ministry. And now from here to the end of the book, 24 chapters, from here to the end of the book is going to take only one year. He's going to document one year. It took like 30 years up till now, one year, which tells us the importance of the gospel. The importance of how time slows down to pay attention to it. So, big idea of the sermon this morning, Christ is the glory, uh, Christ is the king of glory, behold him. That's the big idea, you get lost somewhere in this. Uh, Christ is the king of glory, behold him. Three movements, we'll, we'll sort of look at the transfiguration there, the glory of Christ, verse 28 to 36. We'll then think about faith as seeing that glory of Christ, 37 to 45. And then thirdly, the evidence of our seeing the glory of Christ, verse 46 to 50. So first off, transfiguration. We're just going to think now about the glory of Christ and make sense of the, what's called the transfiguration. Verse 27, I'm going to read that one. leads into it, 927. But I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what, we, what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So first off, take a look at that verse, verse 27. Jesus says there's going to be some that are going to, be, they're going to see the kingdom. Well, that some, I believe, has got to be some of the disciples, since, who that, since that's who he was talking to. 
And I believe that verse 27 is intentionally put next to what comes in the transfiguration so as to show that the transfiguration is the answer to what Jesus said in verse 27. Namely, that the sum of the disciples is Peter, James, and John, and they're going to get to go up to the mountain on the Mount of Transfiguration and behold the King of glory. Christ is the fountain of the kingdom, and all else that flows out flows out from him, and those disciples are going to see the glory of Christ who is the king of the kingdom. Now in these nine verses, 28 down to 36, uh, I would argue, I think many could argue that the Bible begins to kind of come together in these events because so many of its themes collect together like streams into this one great river where Jesus is transformed right before our eyes. So let me just show you a couple of the themes that when we look back at Scripture and sort of see how they land here in the Bible, uh, in this passage in particular, how they kind of come together in the transfiguration. First off, in verse 28, notice the presence of the mountain. Mountain. The mountain reminds us, we, we think back to all the other critical events of the Bible, and they all happen on mountains. I was encouraged this week, I had a list of about 15 of them, and they said, Nathan, cut it down. Uh, so I give you like three. Like one, we know from Ezekiel 28 that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. We know that God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. And of course, we know the holy mount, right? The temple was on a mountain. And so Jesus will later be crucified on Golgotha, which is a hill or a mount. And we know that the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is indeed a mount. So that's important. But also, look at the presence of the cloud there in verse 34. This reminds us of when the Lord led his people out of Egypt, right? He led them out in a cloud. There was also to be a cloud again on Mount Sinai. And of course, the glory of God descended on that temple in a cloud. But there is even more here that ties the Bible together in these events. We see that in the midst of Jesus praying, the text tells us that the appearance of Jesus' face was altered. In Matthew's account of these events, he uses the word we get our word metamorphosis from. It metamorphizes. So here, though, he uses the word altered. It's where we get our word hetero. Hetero, it changed. It means, it means other. But here the word altered means other. So Jesus' face changed to something other. Namely, his face changed or was altered to reveal his glory. To reveal his glory. Philippians 2, 5 to 7, you can go back and study us and think about it more this afternoon. Philippians 2, 5 to 7 says that Jesus was in the form of God. He was God. He did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but instead he poured himself out into the form of a servant, becoming, it says, a mortal man. In other words, Jesus was God, but he was willing to set aside his glory, not his divinity. Hear me. Not his divinity. He set aside his glory in order to have it hidden by his taking on humanity. And so he gained, he lost nothing, he only gained humanity. And in so doing, that humanity hid the glory of Christ. And the altered state of Christ's face and the close was a momentary peeling back of the flesh, of the humanity of Christ, so that Peter, James, and John, and us could see the glorious majesty of true identity of Jesus. He is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man, full of glory. And by Peter, James, and John seeing the glory of Christ, they then see the heart of the kingdom. And so do we, wonder of wonders. We get to see it too, wonder of wonders. Now apparently, 
Peter, James, and John had done what they seem to always do in big events, fall asleep, right? They're good at falling asleep. The Lord's working these guys a lot, right? All these big events, they're falling asleep all the time. And, and they wake up, and so they don't actually see the transfiguration happen in real time, but they wake up and they see the glory of Christ in his face, as well as seeing Moses and Elijah, which I'll come back to in a second. But it says there in verse 32 that when they became fully awake, so what Luke is doing, what the author is doing, is he wants you to know, he wants us to know, he wants Theophilus to know, this is not a dream. This is not a dream. They were fully awake. This is true. This is real. When they're fully awake, they saw the glory of Christ. John would later, later write in his gospel, John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory means weight, means brightness, shining. And so I'm going to, we're going to come back to this notion of seeing the glory of Christ because I do think that's critical as it relates to our understanding of what the faith is. But I want to ask three questions to go deeper into this reality of what we're seeing in the transfiguration. Three questions in particular. Uh, what is Moses and Elijah doing here? What is all that about? And then secondly, why does Luke include this statement about Peter wanting to build three tents and yet not knowing what he's talking about? Like, why include that? Third, let's get behind what is meant by the voice when it says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. When we answer those three questions, it's going to give us the meaning of the passage. The, and this meaning, by the way, guys, is, is one of the most important sort of highest peaks of Scripture. So it was rivaled only by the cross and the resurrection. And so with the backdrop of the revelation of the glory of Christ, here's the answer to that first question about Moses and Elijah. With the backdrop of the revelation of the glory of Christ, Moses and Elijah are there to represent the Bible. Represent the Bible. In particular, the promises of the Bible in the Old Testament. So at the time of Christ, uh, the, Bible would have, the Hebrew Bible would have been referred to as the Law and the Prophets. If you're familiar reading your scripture, you hear that a lot. The Law and the Prophets, Law and the Prophets, Law and the Prophets. Sometimes, as we'll see at the end of Luke, Law, Prophets, and Writings. And so the first representation, Moses there, he was the author of the Law, those first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Torah, the Pentateuch. He's the Law. He wrote the Law. He received the Law. He represents the Law. And then that second figure, we've seen him come up a number of times in our study through Luke. Uh, Elijah is known as the greatest prophet of Israel, the prophet. And so he represents the prophets, which was the group of uh, scripture that comes after the law. So we have the law and the prophets. They are there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah are there to tell us that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament points to Jesus as its answer. We're going to get more. That's going to become more clear as we kind of work through these questions. Secondly, though, what's all this about Peter wanting to build three tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus? What's that all about? Sort of a strange thing, isn't it? Especially the inclusion of, and he didn't know what in the world he was talking about. What's going on here? Well, this is here to show us that while Peter just got the right confession, we thought about that last week, it's here to show us that Peter got the right confession of Christ. Luke wants us to see he still doesn't understand the totality of who Jesus is. And Peter suggesting to build three tents, he sees Jesus as just one more prophet in a long line of prophets. Similar to how, say, Islam understands Muhammad as just the final prophet, and Jesus was just one of those prophets, just a succession of prophets. Or even how the Catholic Church sort of sees the Pope as sort of a continuing sort of way of voice of God. 
Or even how Mormons see sort of Walmart prophets. They just kind of keep going. That's how Peter is sort of seeing the thing. This explains why in verse 34 it says that as he was saying these things, that's an important part right there. Verse 34, as he was saying these things, as Peter was saying these things, should I build three tents? As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. God the Father here was descending upon the mountain just as he did in Mount Sinai. Why? In order to make clear who Jesus is. And that is the context for those words. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then we get the words in verse 36. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. He stands apart. God the Father, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, Peter, Luke wants us to know Jesus is not just another prophet. He stands alone. He's the one that all the Bible comes together and points to, right? We think about that passage in Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 3. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom uh, also he created the world. He is, Jesus is, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe. He expands his kingdom, how? By the word of his power. Jesus stands alone because he and he alone is the son of God, the chosen one of God, and who has taken on flesh to accomplish the work of the gospel. He is the king, and he's going to bring the kingdom of, all, of God in, in. And so the redemptive history is laser-focused on the person and the work of Christ. And so we have to understand him if we understand anything else. So here we have the eternally glorious Son of God is going to go on to accomplish the work of the gospel. He has no rivals. He is the only one of whom we should look to as Lord and Savior. Which then leads us to that third question. And maybe you didn't even ask that question, listen to him. But it's really important to get behind those words because those words are critical to understanding the identity of Christ. Of all the things that God the Father could have said in this moment, why does he say, listen to him? Like he could have said, worship him. Could have said, praise him. But he says, listen to him. So why does God the Father say that? Two reasons. First one is, God upholds, he governs by his word. That's the first reason. But the second reason, is because those three words, listen to him, those three words fulfill the long-awaited promise of God to his people. If you want to, you could flip back to Deuteronomy 18. I'm going to put it up here on the screen in a moment, but if not, at least write it down next to it. You should write in big letters, Deuteronomy 18, 15, dash to 18. 18, 15 to 18, 18, Deuteronomy. Here's the context. Here's what's going on. Deuteronomy 18 is, or, or I should say Luke 9, is answering that promise back in Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, the setting is you have Moses. This is him preparing God's people before they go into the land. That's the setting. They're getting them, he's getting them ready, and he makes a promise. Moses makes a promise from God that's so big that future generations would stand on tiptoe waiting for it to come to fruition. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy even ends. Deuteronomy 34, the law ends, still looking for the answer to this promise, and here it is. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. All right, so what do you mean by a prophet like me, Moses? It means three things. One, a prophet means it's going to speak the words of God. Two, 
The second thing he means like me is he's going to deliver them out of slavery, just as Moses did. And thirdly, he's going to point them into the promised land. That's what Moses did. And so he's going to be like him in that he's going to speak the words of God. He's going to deliver them from slavery and point them into the promised land. So the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. That means he's going to be Jewish. We know from Genesis 49, he would be of the tribe of Judah. We know from 2 Samuel 7, he's going to be of the tribe. He's going to be of the line of David. It is to him that you should listen. You shall listen to him. Listen to that one that comes. And so God the Father uses the misunderstanding of Peter to show the whole world that God did raise up a prophet like Moses. In fact, there's a greater Moses. Greater than Moses. This, of the one, the one that God raised up is God's son. The chosen one, my chosen one, God says, is God's son. The Messiah, the anointed one, is the one, the glorious Savior, that's going to break the curse of sin and death. God's glorious Son is the answer to the promise of Deuteronomy 18, and really the whole Pentateuch, and really the whole Bible. And so you must listen to him. So in the days following Jesus' ascension, when Peter preaches one of the first uh, sermons after the gospel has been accomplished, one of the very first sermons, uh, we see actually Peter quoting this actual passage, Deuteronomy 18. He quotes this passage in one of the first sermons in order to show the Jews this is the one. Christ is the answer. And so maybe now you see why I said this passage brings all the Bible together. Jesus is revealed not only as the Messiah, but his flesh is peeled back and we see that he is full of the glory of God because he is the son of God. He's not just another prophet. He's the prophet of prophets. He's the chosen one of God that we should listen to. This is huge. This is why Christians see, say Jesus is Lord. If you're wondering why do Christians say that, why do we follow him? It's because he's the Lord. And one of the ways in which we follow him is we listen to his word. That's why the Bible's so important to us. Which leads me into a sort of a sort of a step aside in the sermon. It's just something to be helpful to note in this. The only way we know this stuff about the transfiguration that I just explained, the only way we know that is because of the truthfulness of the Bible. If we didn't have this, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't be certain. Which is why I had uh, Chris read that verse at the beginning. I don't know if you caught that. It was a very intentional, a deliberate choice to read 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, Peter, who's up on the mountain at the transfiguration, actually is rehearsing the events of the transfiguration. And he says, in essence, which would be better? Be up there and see the transfiguration with our own eyes? Or to have the Bible that tells us what those events mean? And Peter says, we have something more fully confirmed, more sure, the Bible. So this is a good, good way to kind of drive this home. My old hermeneutics professor in seminary told this story. I've told this story a lot. I love this story. It's so helpful. He says, imagine a father and a son walking through the parted Red Sea. Right? Red Sea is parting. Father, son walking through it. Son looks up to the father and says, dad, what does all this mean? And the father says, I don't know. We've got to wait for the book. There you go. That's what it is. The Bible is helping us see what they mean. So, I don't know if you ever thought about this, we stand in a better position than have been on the Mount of Transfiguration because the Bible, God's word, more fully confirmed, 
helps us understand what the events mean. If you would have been there at the cross of Christ, don't think that you would have believed because the reality is you wouldn't have had this to tell you what it means. And so we know all these beautiful things of Christ and what he's going to do because God gave us his word. And he's given those Christians eyes to see and ears to hear it. Well, here we go. Let's kind of move into how, how do we then move? How do we respond to these realities of Jesus? Transfer. How do we respond? How do Christians respond? How do all people, how should they respond to this? Well, I'm going to use the next verses to answer that question. Verses 37 to 45. Faith as seeing the glory of Christ. Verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seized him, and he suddenly cried out, cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long? Am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Guys, just pause there for a moment. If you're wondering what the goal of evil is, that's it. To destroy you. It'll often come in degrees, but that's what they're trying to do. They want to throw you down and destroy you. While he was coming to the the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked. He preached. It was his word. He ruled by his word. He rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And note the words, and all were astonished at the what? Majesty of God. They are connecting that Jesus is God. He's doing the majesty of God. And so the response to the transfiguration, uh, and it goes on. Let me keep going. But while... So, uh, but while, this is critical, Cir- circle that word while. All were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So the answer to how we respond to this transfiguration, to the revelation of the glory of Christ, the person and the work of Christ, who he actually is, our answer is found as to how we respond, how everyone should respond, our answer is found down there in verse 44. Let these words sink, sink in your ears. You hear Jesus trying to like, you've got to get this. Let these words sink in your ears. What words? Well, look at verse 44. It's the gospel. He just That's what he says. I'm going to be handed over. So this is the second time. We saw it last week in the passage before. Here it is. He's saying it again. You've got to let the gospel, the son of man's going to die to atone for sins. He's going to raise. You've got to get this gospel sink deeply in your ears. Guys, Jesus is incredibly preoccupied with the gospel. He is centrally focused on accomplishing the work of the gospel. He is single-minded. 
He is preoccupied with the gospel. I mean, look at that. That word while is significant. That really stood out to me this week in my study. Notice that Jesus overcomes a powerful demon that nobody else could overcome, and everyone is gawking at him as the majesty of God. And what does he do in that moment? Right? You know, if, if, you, if you or I were, my, 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 were Jesus, we would sort of say, like, yep, that's right, come on. That's who I am, right? But that's not what he does. He's like, listen, Lil. He takes that moment while they're gawking at him, having just cast out that demon. While that was happening, he looks at his disciples, listen, you cannot get, you, you cannot lose sight of the gospel in the midst of all this. These things are signs. I've got to go and be handed over to atone for sins. Don't lose sight. You've got all these people gawking at him. And he uses that as an opportunity to tell them about the importance of the gospel. He's so focused on the gospel. The gospel is the lens by which Jesus understands his mission. This is his mission. This has to be our mission. The, the gospel has to sink into us. Sink into us. He wants the, us to see that the gospel is not just the power of God for salvation. He wants us to see that the gospel of, of God is the power for sanctification and for glorification. Because of his work on the cross and atoning for sins, our only hope, which we'll rehearse in the Lord's Supper. But I want you to notice, flip back over there to verse 30 and 31. Some of you are going, Nathan, how did you miss that? I didn't miss it. I just was waiting to use it now. Did you catch that conversation going on there? Verse 30 and 31. In those verses, we see Moses and Elijah having a conversation. What in the world are they talking about? Wouldn't that be interesting to know? Transfiguration. Moses made it back into the land, by the way. It's a whole other thing we could talk about. They're having a conversation, the three of them. What in the world are they talking about? Verse 31, whatever it is, it's got to be a big deal, right? In those verses, we read that Moses and Elijah are having a conversation about the gospel. Verse 31, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish, the word there is fulfill at Jerusalem. That word for departure in verse 31 is going to blow your mind. In the original, the word there is exodus. The second book of the Bible, the great, what some would say, the Old Testament gospel, Moses leading them out of the exodus from the land of Egypt. Gospel. Here we have Moses, who led the first exodus, is talking Jesus about the second and greater exodus that he's about to accomplish or fulfill. Moses is talking to the greater Moses about the greater Exodus who will lead people out of the greater slavery of our sin and into the greater promised land, the new and forever Jerusalem. That's what they're talking about. And he will do it. Jesus will do it. He will accomplish it, this great Exodus, this second and greater Exodus. He will accomplish it in the similar way to the first Exodus. The Lamb of God will shed his blood so as to purchase freedom into the promised land. Which is why the Passover meal points to Jesus. Let this gospel sink into your ears. It's got to be our central focus. Look at this next week. Lewis will talk about this in verse 51. What does Jesus say in this 50, verse 51? He set his face 
to Jerusalem. Says it again there in verse 53, but the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Jesus is centrally minded on accomplishing this second greater exodus. The gospel has got to sink deeply. It's got to be our central focus for everything. The gospel is the lens by which we see the world. But how is it we come to see that gospel in the first place? That's a critical question we need to answer. All I've said so far, just to kind of quickly review, the transfiguration shows us the glory of Christ, who he actually is. And we've seen uh, that we have to have this gospel sink into our ears. But now I want to answer the question, that's the central focus of Jesus as the Son of God, the one we're supposed to listen to, but how do we enter into this sight? How does it sink, in other words? Well, I think the answer to that is found in the way that Jesus responds to why the disciples and others could not cast out the demon. What was Jesus' response? Why couldn't the demon come out? Why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon of the boy? Well, you see it in Jesus' frustration in verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. They lacked faith. If you go back and read Mark's account, that's sort of what he, actually Matthew's account, that's what he highlights. They lacked faith. Now, to be clear, that does not mean, that does not say that the disciples didn't have faith but their faith was too twisted up with themselves or their own generation. Remember, this is the context in Mark chapter nine when the father will say, I believe, y'all know the rest, help my unbelief. That's the same context, same event. So we've seen that in Peter's misunderstanding, we've seen this already, that the fact that they sort of have faith but they're still lacking. We've seen that in Peter's misunderstanding with the tense. We'll see it again in a minute when he considers this, these guys arguing for who the greatest is. So some had faith, but the power of their faith was held back due to their trusting too much in themselves or their own twisted generation. And we can do the same thing, right? Like Peter, we make the right confession, but we don't readily trust in the Jesus of the transfiguration to cast out the evil of our own lives. We haven't let the person and the work of Christ sink into our ears, deep down into our hearts. And so that it sort of, because it's not outdemic, begins to get stopped up and we get stuck. We go on like Peter, functioning as though, we don't say this, we don't even readily believe this, but we function as though Jesus is just like Moses or like Elijah, powerful prophet, not the son of God full of radiant glory. We believe that Jesus can cast out demons, can cast out evil, can do stuff in us. But then we go on trying to cast out the evil, the demons of our own lives and our own power and strength. We believe, but we need help for our unbelief. We can't seem to get past the sexual, financial, or glory-seeking ambitions that we have. Why? Because either one, some of you in this room just don't believe Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's why. Secondly, our faith can get twisted and we lack faith in the Jesus of the transfiguration because, again, we trust in ourselves or other things too much. Instead of trusting more readily in the Christ who is dazzling white and declared by the God, the Father, the chosen one of God who is ushering in the kingdom, who rules by his word. We see in verse 45, it tells us that the disciples did not understand the gospel because it was concealed from this. And we know 
Jesus is doing this so as to protect the gospel until he accomplishes it. But it was concealed to them at this time. But friends, that's not true of us that believe today. It has not been concealed from us that believe today. It has been granted by God's amazing grace for us that believe to be part of God's great exodus. We no longer live in Egypt, friends. We no longer live in Egypt. We have come through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea, as it were, and our citizenship is in the new Jerusalem. For us that believe, that is true. Christ has accomplished it. He said himself, three words, it is, you say it, finished, it's done, it's accomplished. And so let the message of the gospel sink into our ears by your believing. Not just say you believe. Growing in that belief. And you say, all right, Nathan, how do I do that? Well, go try hard this week. Isn't that terrible? If, like if that was true, we work really hard at trusting more. See you, let's pray, go home. And that's the, that's the message of religion. But that's not the message of the gospel. So how does it sink in? I see, Nathan, you've sort of helped me see. God's word has helped me see that like I'm faithless in these things. I have belief, but I'm helping. I'm lacking unbelief. Some of you have no faith at all. But now you're asking, how is it I, how is it I let the gospel sink? How is it I grow in trust? How is it I get changed? How is it I kind of get past the evil that are kind of keeping me stuck? Well, we need to have faith. We need to be strengthened in faith. But how do I do that? Here's the answer. By your daily. We saw this last week. By your daily going up to the Mount of Transfiguration to behold the glory of Christ. That's how. Daily going up to the Mount of Transfiguration, daily going to the cross, daily going to the empty tomb, and beholding the glory of Christ. You say, Nathan, that's not real practical. Well, let me give you the Apostle Paul's counsel. He says the same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 to 18, speaking to another church that's stuck, that's believing but not, but struggling in their unbelief. Same sort of situation that's stuck. What's his counsel? He's going to tell you to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's his answer. Take a look. Speaking to the church, since we have such a hope, there's the gospel, we are very bold. And then he's going to go on to talk about how Moses went up to the mount of Sinai and talked to God face to face and he came down off the mountain and he had to put a he had to put a, a veil over his face because if the Israelites saw the glory reflecting off of him by the way I should have mentioned earlier notice that the glory of Christ was coming out of him it wasn't reflected on him like Moses it was coming out of him he became dazzling white and so in this case Paul is saying Moses goes up to the mountain he comes down glory is shining off his face because he met with God and he had to put a veil over his face and uh, Paul says to the church, we have this hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so he's using sort of metaphors here, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds, this is the Jews, but their minds were hardened. For to us this day, when they read the old covenant, this is the Jews, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, I would still argue that's true today. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, there's the, there's the Torah, there's the law. Whenever the Bible, as it were, is read, the veil, he says, uh, is, is read, a, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, what happens? The veil is removed. 
And now the Lord, love this, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When the veil comes up, we see it, Spirit comes in, and there's freedom, not captivity, not Egypt. Bible, people say that the Bible is a, is a straight jacket. Well, yes, because we're jacked up, right? We need freedom to live as we were made to live. We were birds that were made to fly. We were cheetahs that were made to run. We were suns that were made to shine. And we don't do that when we're sinning. And so we need a sight of the glory of Christ to do that we were supposed to do so that we'd have the freedom to live as we were supposed to live. And so he says, when the Spirit comes in, the veil is lifted, and we all, here it is, this is key, and we all, that's the Christians, with unveiled face, what happens? Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, which is to say we're being changed by the thing we look at from one degree of glory to another. In other words, it takes time. Be thankful you don't change 10 degrees of glory because you'd probably die. How does Paul say we get unchanged? By having the veil lifted up so that we can behold the glory of Christ. And as we behold him, we're changed from one degree of glory. It takes time. We're transformed by beholding the glory of Christ. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, echoing back creation of Genesis 1 and 2, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in the Christian's heart, in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Same language that we're reading about in the transfiguration. And so this is what I mean when I say, by saying that when you're stuck, when you have, when you lack faith, are twisted, you're twisted up by this generation. This is what I mean when I say go back up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Go back up and see the glory of Christ every day, beholding it. And as you behold it, you're transformed into the image of the one that you're looking at. By the way, I, should, I could also sit and make the other argument, right? If you're looking at other stuff, you're, be, you're, you're, being, you're coming like that, whatever that is. That's a whole other separate sermon. I'd love to preach another day. But you become what you behold. You become what you behold. You are what you love. And the more that you look into the face of the glory of Christ, the more you're changed. Guys, this is why you guys get probably sick and tired of us saying, you gotta be in the word. You gotta be in prayer. You gotta be amongst fellowship. Because these are the main channels by which God is growing us to behold him and change us for his glory that we might live in the freedom of the spirit and not be bound by the world. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the door, is the power by which we Come to behold the glory of Christ. Last and final question. How do we know that we've beheld? How can we be sure that we've been changed? How do we be sure that we're in Christ? That we've gone up to the mountain? That, we've, that we're saved? Verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put him by his side and said to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. In other words, he's not with us. He's not doing it like we're doing it. But Jesus said to them, do not stop him. The one who is not against you is for you.
How do you know that you're listening to Christ? How do you know that the, the gospel's sinking into your ears? Answered by your beholding Christ. Well, how can you be sure that you're beholding Christ? By looking and evaluating to see if you're living in true greatness. You say, what's true greatness? True greatness receives, listens, welcomes, serves as a child. You say, how's that true greatness? Reason being, friend, because a child can do nothing for you. That's the illustration. A child can do nothing for you and you can do something for them. So you, you might be glad to serve other people that can do something for you. That's not great. That's common, but it's not great. It's often referred to as greatness, especially in this town, but it's not great. It's not great. It's not great at all. It's common. Everybody does that. There's nothing great in serving people because of what you can get out of them for yourself. Greatness is found in serving people you can't get anything out of, like a child, all because you want so desperately to get something in on them. You see, Jesus, all he's doing is he just went from glorying in God, love God, now he's just applying it by saying neighbor, love neighbor. Service, friends, is not get to, to get something out of them for self, but service to do something in somebody else that can't do anything for you. Namely, the thing that you want to get in on them is the love of Christ so that they, like you, could get untwisted so that they can find freedom and get out of Egypt by looking at the glory of Christ. Service, Christ-like service. And you do that. As you do that, you can be sure that you're beholding the glory of Christ and are being changed. Matter of fact, it's in that service that you are, will be changed. I've lost count of how many times I've uh, stood in crowds where my sons couldn't see what was going on. Parade, concert, they can't see. And so I, what do I do? Hold them up so they can see. I get nothing out of that but pain. <laughs> but I also get something else. I get the joy watching their faces when they see that thing. That's what we do when we do ministry like this, when we do true greatness, service to others. This is what true greatness does. It lifts up the weak, lifts up the needy, the hurting, the disenfranchised, the poor, the wounded, the doubting, the unbelieving, the enemy even. Seeking nothing other than their interest to behold the glory of Christ that they may be changed as you are. And when this happens in your life, when we see this happen in our life together, even as a church, you can be sure we've found true greatness. We're citizens of the kingdom. And when true greatness like this happens because of your love for Christ, then you can be sure that you have beheld the glory of Christ and you are being changed. You can be sure you've received Christ because you've received those that can't do anything for you. If you're just, this is why, like it's not Christianity. If you're not making disciples, you're not helping other people in Jesus' name, I don't know what you mean when you say you're a Christian. 
Christian is not just consuming. It is consuming. That's half. It's the same thing in a marriage. You don't just consume the love of your spouse. You give it back. If you're only consuming and not giving, then you're not understanding what it means to live in the power of the gospel and behold the face of Christ. Serves. It gives. And the reason why this is true greatness, friends, hopefully you can be able to preach this from here on out, is because this is exactly what Jesus did for us. He served us when we could do nothing for him. And that what he said, abide in me, that I would abide in you, because apart, me, apart from me, you can do nothing. He bled for sinners in order that they might be made saints. He sacrificed for his enemies in order that they might be his friends. True greatness is found in the gospel where Christ became least so that we that are in him might become great. And I thank God for the many ways that this happens in the life of this church. We've got a long way to go, but it's happening. From the parents that lovingly and sacrificially serve their small children with a Christ-like love to the dozens of you that serve our kids to help them see the glory of Christ. What a great privilege. You help my sons. Sent a, sent a text message to Jeffrey Ramos last week. You help my sons see Jesus. Thank you. They can do nothing for you except maybe frustrate you. They do us too, by the way. <laughs> Seeking to get something in people, not just try to get something out of them. Think about the ways you guys do this in sharing the gospel with the lost. How the many of you at your jobs are caring for the weak and the poor and the needy. How many of you in your own time, own free time, and own free, in your money, you're using your resources to help the weak, the poor. That's your, our best resource. That's our best ministry. People, not programs. But we do have some programs to help us do a little bit of this altogether. DC 127, Central Union Mission, Campus Outreach, helps a lot of people in need. I could mention more. But the point is, many of you are striving to be the least among our community because you want Christ to be seen as great among them. And the reality is, friends, I don't know that there's ever been a time in history where this needs to happen more. Our city, our nation, our world is stuck in verse 46. And we get the opportunity to shine light out of it. Show them what it's really like. But there's more evidence that you are beholding the glory of Christ in that last little passage. I'll be quick here. More evidence of the disciples not getting Jesus and his kingdom is seen when they try and stop other people doing some good work in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, the one who is not against you is for you. And one of the ways, other ways you can be sure that you're listening to Christ, it's sinking, you're looking at his glory, you're being changed, is when you serve other people in Jesus' name, seeking not to get anything out of them. And secondly, when you support the work of others who are doing the same. When you're supporting the work of others that are doing the same thing. Competitiveness in the church is a stench in the nostrils of God. It compromises the nature of the gospel and it hurts the many who could be helped by Jesus' name. I hate when I do it, I hate it. It's in me sometimes. I hate it. Ask God to get it out of me. The church of Christ is uniquely equipped to see the advance of the kingdom of God on the earth. And we are best, beloved, when we partner together for that work all over the world. And just, so just like, the le world, just like leaders in the world are stuck in verse 46, there's a lot of church leaders that are stuck in the foolishness of verse 49. That's why we pray for other churches every week. That's why when I meet you and you, you, you're from Rockville, I'm going to push you as much as I can to New Covenant Baptist. I'm thankful that Christ prayed for them. You're from, I don't know, Capitol Hill. Go to Capitol Hill Baptist. We partner together. 
This is what we do, even a major part of what we do in our church. Iglesia Biblica Sublime Gracia. I got to get used to saying that for tonight. That's why we're partnering with them. They're caring for the weak. They're caring for, for people in this city that most people care nothing about. As a matter of fact, the only way some, a lot of them want to be cared for is to get them out of here. But this, we plant this church in there to serve them. Mercy of Christ Fellowship, our partner with them in Northeast, among Lincoln Heights, one of the most dangerous, poverty, drug-stricken parts of their city. We want to help them because we believe what they're doing is good, is important. Restoration Church is the furthest, well, Restoration Church is not the kingdom. We, 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 we show a little bit of that, but we need everybody working together all over the earth to push it out. That's why we're doing partnering with our work in Central Asia to do the same so that more people would move from faithlessness to being faithful, move from being twisted to being untwisted. And that happens by all of us working together. It's one of the reasons I'm glad Lewis Guest is gonna come here next week to give you a little taste of the Treasure in Christ Together Network what they're doing in Minneapolis to get as many people as we can up the Mount of Transfiguration so that they could see the glory of Christ and consider the accomplishment of the gospel where Christ overcame sin and death and the cross and the resurrection. Christ is the answer. He is the eternally glorious son. He has accomplished the work of redemption. We are changed by beholding him in his glory. And then secondly, we then go serve others. And then we also help others and pray for others and are happy when others are doing the same work. And as we do all of this, beloved, we grow up into the kingdom. And soon enough, we'll all get home and we'll see his face forever. That's the day I look forward to. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Jesus, you are glorious. You are good. You are the answer to the promise of Deuteronomy 18. You are the greater prophet, the greater Moses, the greater Elijah. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You have finished the work of redemption. And you have sent your spirit that we might go and spread that good news and have all those that respond come together to worship you and then go back out to keep doing that until you return when we will see you in the infinite fullness of your glory. We wait for that day and pray that it would come soon. But until then, may we believe. And God, help us in our unbelief. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.